This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Megan Olson, in Waxhaw, North Carolina, September 2007. North and South by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter 10: Wrought Iron and Gold. We are the trees, whom shaking fastens more. George Herbert. Mr. Thornton left the house without coming into the dining room again. He was rather late, and walked rapidly out to Crampton. He was anxious not to slight his new friend by any disrespectful unpunctuality. The church clock struck half past seven, as he stood at the door awaiting Dixon's slow movements. Always doubly slow when she had to degrade herself by answering the doorbell, he was ushered into the little drawing room, and kindly greeted by Mr. Hale, who led him up to his wife, whose pale face and shawl-draped figure made a silent excuse for the cold languor of her greeting. Margaret was lighting the lamp when he entered, for the darkness was coming on. The lamp threw a pretty light into the centre of the dusky room. From which, with country habits, they did not exclude the night skies, and the outer darkness of air. Somehow, that room contrasted itself with the one he had lately left—handsome, ponderous, with no sign of feminine habitation except in the one spot where his mother sat, and no convenience for any other employment than eating and drinking. To be sure, it was a dining room; his mother preferred to sit in it. And her will was a household law, but the drawing room was not like this. It was twice, twenty times as fine, not one quarter as comfortable. Here were no mirrors, not even a scrap of glass to reflect the light, and answer the same purpose as water in a landscape. No gilding, a warm, sober breath of colouring, well relieved by the dear old Helston chintz curtains and chair covers. An open davenport stood in the window opposite the door, from which drooped wreaths of English ivy, pale green birch, and copper-coloured beech leaves. Pretty baskets of work stood about in different places, and books, not cared for on account of their binding solely, lay on one table, as if recently put down. Behind the door was another table, decked out for tea, with a white tablecloth. On which flourished the coconut cakes, and a basket piled with oranges, and ruddy American apples heaped on leaves. It appeared to Mr. Thornton that all these graceful cares were habitual to the family, and especially of a piece with Margaret. She stood by the table in a light-coloured muslin gown, which had a good deal of pink about it. She looked as if she was not attending to the conversation, but solely busy with the teacups. Among which her round ivory hands moved with pretty noiseless daintiness. She had a bracelet on one taper arm, which would fall down over her round wrist. Mr. Thornton watched the replacing of this troublesome ornament with far more attention than he listened to her father. It seemed as if it fascinated him to see her push it up impatiently until it tightened her soft flesh, and then to mark the loosening, the fall. He could almost have exclaimed, "There it goes again!" 
There was so little left to be done after he arrived at the preparation for tea, that he was almost sorry, for the obligation of eating and drinking came so soon to prevent his watching Margaret. She handed him his cup of tea, with the proud air of an unwilling slave, but her eye caught the moment when he was ready for another cup, and he almost longed to ask her to do for him what he saw her compelled to do for her father, who took her little finger and thumb in his masculine hand, and made them serve as sugar-tongs. Mr. Thornton saw her beautiful eyes lifted to her father, full of light, half-laughter, and half-love, as this bit of pantomime went on between the two, unobserved, as they fancied, by any. Margaret's head still ached, as the paleness of her complexion, and her silence might have testified, but she was resolved to throw herself into the breach. If there was any long, untoward pause, rather than that her father's friend, pupil, and guest— should have cause to think himself in any way neglected. But the conversation went on, and Margaret drew into a corner, near her mother, with her work, after the tea-things were taken away, and felt that she might let her thoughts roam without fear of being suddenly wanted to fill up a gap. Mr. Thornton and Mr. Hale were both absorbed in the continuation of some subject which had been started at their last meeting— Margaret was recalled to a sense of the present by some trivial, low-spoken remark of her mother's, and, on suddenly looking up from her work, her eye was caught by the differences of outward appearance between her father and Mr. Thornton, as betokening such distinctly opposite natures. Her father was of a slight figure, which made him appear taller than he really was, when not contrasted, as at this time, with the tall, massive frame of another. The lines in her father's face were soft and waving, with a frequent undulating kind of trembling movement passing over them, showing every fluctuating emotion. The eyelids were large and arched, giving to the eyes a peculiar, languid beauty, which was almost feminine. The brows were finely arched, but were, by the very size of the dreamy lids, "'raised to a considerable distance from the eyes. "'Now, in Mr. Thornton's face, "'the straight brows fell low over the clear, "'deep-set, earnest eyes, "'which, without being unpleasantly sharp, "'seemed intent enough to penetrate "'into the very heart and core "'of what he was looking at. "'The lines in the face were few, but firm, "'as if they were carved in marble, "'and lay principally about the lips.' which were slightly compressed over a set of teeth so faultless and beautiful as to give the effect of sudden sunlight when the rare bright smile, coming in an instant and shining out of the eyes, changed the whole look from the severe and resolved expression of a man ready to do and dare everything to the keen, honest enjoyment of the moment, which is seldom shown so fearlessly and instantaneously except by children. Margaret liked the smile, it was the first thing she had admired in this new friend of her father's, and the opposition of character, shown in all these details of appearance she had been just noticing, seemed to explain the attraction they evidently felt towards each other. She rearranged her mother's worsted work, and fell back into her own thoughts, as completely forgotten by Mr. Thornton as if she had not been in the room. So thoroughly was he occupied in explaining to Mr. Hale the magnificent power 
yet delicate adjustment of the night of the steam-hammer, which was recalling to Mr. Hale some of the wonderful stories of subservient genie in the Arabian Nights. One moment stretching from earth to sky and filling all the width of the horizon, at the next obediently compressed into a vase small enough to be borne in the hand of a child. And this imagination of power, this practical realization of a gigantic thought, came out of one man's brain in our good town. That very man has it within him to mount step by step on each wonder he achieves to higher marvels still. And I'll be bound to say we have many among us who, if he were gone, could spring into the breach and carry on the war which compels, and shall compel, all material power to yield to science. Your boast reminds me of the old lines of a hundred captains in England, he said, as good as ever was he. At her father's quotation, Margaret looked suddenly up with inquiring wonder in her eyes. How in the world had they got from cogwheels to Chevy Chase? It is no boast of mine, replied Mr. Thornton. It is plain matter of fact. I won't deny that I am proud of belonging to a town, or perhaps I should rather say a district, the necessities of which gave birth to such grandeur of conception. I would rather be a man, toiling, suffering, nay, failing and successless here, than lead a dull, prosperous life in the old, worn grooves of what you call a more aristocratic society down in the South, with their slow days of careless ease. One may be clogged with honey and unable to rise and fly. "'You are mistaken,' said Margaret, roused by the aspersion on her beloved South, to a fond vehemence of defence. That brought the colour into her cheeks and the angry tears into her eyes. "'You do not know anything about the South.' If there is less adventure or less progress, I suppose I must not say less excitement from the gambling spirit of trade, which seems requisite to force out these wonderful inventions, there is less suffering also. I see some men here going about in the streets who look ground down by some pinching sorrow or care, who are not only sufferers but haters. Now, in the South we have our poor. But there is not that terrible expression in their countenances of a sullen sense of injustice which I see here. You do not know the South, Mr. Thornton, she concluded, collapsing into a determined silence, and angry with herself for having said so much. And may I say, you do not know the North? asked he, with an inexpressible gentleness in his tone, as he saw that he had really hurt her. She continued resolutely silent, yearning after the lovely haunts that she had left far away in Hampshire, with a passionate longing that made her feel her voice would be unsteady and trembling if she spoke. At any rate, Mr. Thornton, said Mrs. Hale, you will allow that Milton is much more smoky, dirty town than you will ever meet with in the South. I'm afraid we must give up its cleanliness, said Mr. Thornton, with a quick gleaming smile. But we are bidden by Parliament to burn our own smoke. So I suppose, like good little children, we shall do as we are bid sometime. But I think you told me you had altered your chimney so as to consume the smoke. Did you not? asked Mr. Hale. Mine were altered by my own mill, before Parliament meddled with the affair. 
It was an immediate outlay, but it repaid me in the saving of coal. I am not sure whether I should have done it, if I had waited until the act was passed. At any rate, I should have waited to be informed against and fined, and given all the trouble in yielding that I legally could. But all laws, which depend for their enforcement upon informers and fines, become inert from the odiousness of the machinery. I doubt if there has been a chimney in Milton informed against for five years past, although some are constantly sending out one-third of their coal in what is called here unparliamentary smoke. I only know it is impossible to keep the muslin blinds clean here above a week together, and at Helston we have had them for a month or more, and they have not looked dirty at the end of that time. As for hands, Margaret, how many times did you say you had washed your hands this morning before twelve o'clock? Three times, was it not? Yes, mamma. You seem to have a strong objection to acts of Parliament, and all legislation affecting your mode of management down here at Milton, said Mr. Hale. Yes, I have, and many others have as well, and with justice, I think. The whole machinery— I don't mean the wood and iron machinery now, of the cotton trade, is so new that it is no wonder if it does not work well in every part all at once. Seventy years ago, what was it? And now, what is it not? Raw, crude materials came together. Men of the same level, as regarded education and station, took suddenly the different positions of masters and men, owing to the mother-wit— as regarded opportunities and probabilities, which distinguished some, and made them far-seeing as to what great future lay concealed in that rude model of Sir Richard Arkwright's, the rapid development of what might be called a new trade gave those early masters enormous power of wealth and command. I don't mean merely over the workmen. I mean over purchasers, over the whole world's market. Why— I may give you, as an instance, an advertisement, inserted not fifty years ago in Milton, that so-and-so, one of the half-dozen calico printers of the time, would close his warehouse at noon each day, therefore that all purchasers must come before that hour. Fancy a man dictating in this manner the time which he would sell, and when he would not sell. Now, I believe, if a good customer chose to come at midnight, I should get up— and stand hat in hand to receive his orders. Margaret's lip curled, but somehow she was compelled to listen. She could no longer abstract herself in her own thoughts. I only name such things to show what almost unlimited power the manufacturers had about the beginning of this century. The men were rendered dizzy by it. Because a man was successful in his ventures, there was no reason that in all other things his mind should be well balanced. On the contrary, his sense of justice and his simplicity were often utterly smothered under the glut of wealth that came down upon him, and they tell strange tales of the wild extravagance of living indulged in on gala days by those early cotton lords. There can be no doubt, too, of the tyranny they exercised over their work-people. You know the proverb, Mr. Hale, Set a beggar on horseback, and he'll ride to the devil. Well, some of these early manufacturers did ride to the devil, in a magnificent style, crushing human bone and flesh under their horses' hooves, without remorse. By and by came a reaction. 
There were more factories, more masters, more men were wanted. The power of masters and men became more evenly balanced. And now the battle is pretty fairly waged between us. We will hardly submit to the decision of an empire, much less to the difference of a meddler with only a smattering of the knowledge of the real facts of the case, even though that meddler be called a high court of parliament. Is there necessary for calling it a battle between the two classes? asked Mr. Hale. I know from your issuing the term it is one which gives a true idea of the real state of things to your mind. It is true. And I believe it to be as much a necessity as that prudent wisdom and good conduct are always opposed to, and doing battle with ignorance and improvidence. It is one of the great beauties of our system, that a working man may rise himself into the power and position of a master by his own exertions and behaviour, that, in fact, every one who rules himself to decency and sobriety of conduct and attention to his duties. Comes over to our own ranks. It may not always be as a master, but as an overlooker, a cashier, a bookkeeper, a clerk, one on the side of authority and order. You consider all who are unsuccessful in raising themselves in the world, from whatever cause, as your enemies, then, if I understand you rightly, said Margaret in a clear, cold voice. As their own enemies, certainly. Said he quickly, not a little piqued by the haughty disapproval her form of expression and tone of speaking implied. But in a moment, his straightforward honesty made him feel that his words were but a poor and quibbling answer to what she had said. And, be she as scornful as she liked, it was a duty he owed himself to explain, as truly as he could, what he did mean. Yet it was very difficult to separate her interpretation. And keep it distinct from his meaning. He could best have illustrated what he wanted to say by telling them something of his own life, but it was not too personal a subject to speak about to strangers. Still, it was the simple, straightforward way of explaining his meaning. So, putting aside the touch of shyness that brought a momentary flush of colour into his dark cheek, he said, I am not speaking without book. Sixteen years ago, my father died under very miserable circumstances. I was taken from school and had to become a man, as well as I could, in a few days. I had such a mother as few are blessed with, a woman of strong power and firm resolve. We went into a small country town, where living was cheaper than in Milton, and where I got employment in a draper's shop, a capital place, by the way, for obtaining a knowledge of goods. Week by week, our income came to fifteen shillings, out of which three people had to be kept. My mother managed so that I put by three out of these fifteen shillings regularly. This made the beginning. This taught me self denial. Now that I am able to afford my mother such comforts as her age, rather than her own wish, requires, I thank her silently on each occasion for the early training she gave me. Now, when I feel that in my own case it is no good luck, nor merit, nor talent, but simply the habits of life which taught me to despise indulgences, not thoroughly earned, indeed, never to think twice about them, I believe that this suffering, which Miss Hale says is impressed on the countenances of the people of Milton, is but the natural punishment of dishonestly enjoyed pleasure, 
at some former period in their lives. I do not look on self-indulgent, sensual people as worthy of my hatred. I simply look upon them with contempt for their poorness of character. But you have had the rudiments of a good education, remarked Mr. Hale. The quick zest with which you are now reading Homer shows me that you do not come to it as an unknown book. You have read it before, and are only recalling your old knowledge. That is true. I had blundered along it at school. I dare say. I was even considered a pretty fair classic in those days, though my Latin and Greek have slipped away from me since. But I ask you, what preparation they were for such a life as I have had to lead. None at all. Utterly none at all. On the point of education, any man who can read and write starts fair with me in the amount of really useful knowledge that I had at the time. Well, I don't agree with you, but there I am perhaps somewhat of a pedant. Did not the recollection of the heroic simplicity of the Homeric life nerve you up? Not one bit. exclaimed Mr. Thornton, laughing. I was too busy to think about any dead people, with the living pressing alongside of me, neck to neck, in the struggle for bread. Now that I have my mother safe in the quiet peace that becomes her age, and duly rewards her former exertions, I can turn to all that old narration and thoroughly enjoy it. I dare say my remark came from the professional feeling of there being nothing like leather. Replied Mr. Hale. When Mr. Thornton rose up to go away, after shaking hands with Mr. and Mrs. Hale, he made an advance to Margaret to wish her good bye in a similar manner. It was the frank, familiar custom of the place, but Margaret was not prepared for it. She simply bowed her farewell, although the instant she saw the hand half put out, quickly drawn back, she was sorry she had not been aware of the intention. Mr. Thornton, however, knew nothing of her sorrow, and, drawing himself up to his full height, walked off, muttering as he left the house. A more proud, disagreeable girl I never saw. Even her great beauty is blotted out of one's memory by her scornful ways. End of chapter 10